As we've entered into the Advent season these next few weeks, we will celebrate by turning our attention to the Christmas canticles found in the Gospel of Mark. We begin this morning looking at the first and perhaps the most famous of them, often known as the Magnificat for the Latin translation of one of the key early words, the first word actually in the Latin translation uh, from magnify, uh, and that's found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. We're coming to the word. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we do come this morning with thanksgiving. It's a time of celebration. It's a time coming out of a day set aside for giving thanks to you who has provided for our needs, enabling us to labor and to uh, reap and to live and to experience joy. Yet with all of that, we also not only recognize that it is right to give you thanks, but you've called us to come into your presence, to rest in you. So Lord, we, we come resting in you not only for what we eat and where we live and what we wear, but for renewal of our minds and our hearts, that they may be made like yours. Speak to us, we pray, through the words that you've given us, of the song we consider this morning. And bless us. We may bring joy to you and be a blessing to those around us. We pray to your glory. In Christ. Amen. So begin this morning, I want to ask you to listen to these words from an editorial from the New York Times. Begins by simply with the opening, peace on earth, and then moves into this. On a Christmas when the spirit of peace and goodwill seems conspicuous by its absence from the world of nations, and under its stars, even the little town of Bethlehem lies guarded by grimmer sentinels than the shepherds of an older Judea. It is still in the nature of man to hope and to look around uh, the troubled earth for whatever signs there may be that the worst is not to come. Americans want, above all things, to believe that no danger from without will disturb the quickening movement of national recovery. Perhaps what strikes me most about these timely words is that they were first published on Christmas Day, 1936. And so as I consider these words and how they speak uh, very appropriately to a situation that many of us feel that we are in, in a culture and a country that is in need of recovering, recognizing that there is difficulty among the nations, praying and hoping and laboring so that the worst is not to come, and then realizing that those ex same exact sentiments were expressed in the good old days, uh, 80 years ago. It, it reminds me of a couple of things. One is that the more things have changed, the less things have changed, the more they have remained the same. And I suspect that that old cliche is, is very true. And the primary reason that it is very true is because no matter what the technological advantages, no matter what the philosophical developments, Neither technology nor philosophy can change the nature of man. 
And we, by our nature, are very capable of destroying anything. We have a dizzying capacity to be praising and doing some things that are noble in one hand and then become incredibly self-absorbed and consumed the next. And if we have any question about that, all we need to do is think back a day removed. Because even a few days ago, we set aside a day when we give thanks for all that we have, and particularly for those who are believers in God, to give thanks to the one who has provided every single thing. We feast with family and enjoy the things that he has provided with our attention turned to him. And then with only a matter of the click of the clock, we are consumed by consuming everything we can get our hands on and turning shopping into a contact sport that makes football look like it should be no problem whatsoever. You think there's concussions in football, go to a Black Friday at, at midnight in some of these stores where there is a good deal going on. And we can take even the best of times and very quickly turn our attention and spoil almost anything. Merry Christmas. I mean, that is kind of a bummer of a thought obviously, to start and kick our way into the Advent season. But it's a reality. It's a reality that all of us need to face because all of us need to live with. But it does lead us to ask the question, what is the answer to our dilemma? Where is it that we would find hope? It's to answer that question that I turn our attention to this song that's familiar to very many of you. A song composed by a teenage girl, probably no more than 14, 15 years old, who lived in a very violent time, who was part of an oppressed minority and therefore grew up in poverty. And yet God had blessed her in a way and through her has blessed us all and even through her words we find the hope that we all desire. So we read beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The words of our God. As we look at this, we find reason for our hope. Even if we just look at the first line, the first uh, couple of, of phrases, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. When we consider somebody who lived in a time that she did with no material benefits, threat of violence, and her people despised, rejected, and constantly in threat of being targeted by the government officials, you would wonder why she would offer this kind of perspective. Where does this kind of perspective come from? Somebody whose experience would seem to be almost anything but. 
The answer to that perspective comes in the pages and the verses that we have before. Many of you know the story. You look back into verse 26 of this chapter, we see that this young woman, through no action on her own part, received a visit from an angel. And the angel came and told her that she was to be blessed and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And yet she, like almost any of us, if we were minding our own business in the middle of an evening and an angel appeared to us, was greatly disturbed. That's a mild way to put it. This is not an ordinary occurrence. This is not the answer to a prayer, although it may be an answer to a prayer, but it's not the way that we envision and the way that we would hope. It's quite disturbing presence that was unexpected. And even more disturbing is the message because the Lord had chosen her that she was going to bear the child that was promised from the very beginning, that would be the deliverer of his people, that would be the promised Messiah. Now, in one sense, we stand amazed at this and say, well, of course she has such a perspective. What an amazing gift and blessing she's received. Yet she, though being young, was no fool. Because in her day, not only was there violence taking place in the streets, but even in the practice of religion, there were moral consequences for behavioral choices. And while she herself had not done anything wrong in this instance, a 14-year-old girl who's not married, ends up pregnant, can claim all she wants, I didn't do anything. But most people aren't going to believe that. And while stoning was the law, it wasn't practiced much in her day, but there's another kind of stoning, and that comes from shame and shunning. And this message that is glorious in our ears and certainly evidently glorious in hers would have caused her to be quite aware that her life was never going to be the same. She was going to be the subject of scorn and of ridicule. And if you read through the Gospels, you recognize that she never escaped that all of her life. And perhaps even more of a concern for her is than the people who would scorn her is her husband-to-be. Would she lose him? And then we're told that what happened is after she had had the visit from the angel, her response is amazing itself. May it be as you have said. A simple way of saying, not my will, but your will be done. And then she traveled about 70 miles into the hill country to visit a older relative named Elizabeth who had also experienced a provision from God. Perhaps not a miracle, maybe it is depending on your definition, but it certainly is an amazing provision that she who was well advanced in age who had never had children now found herself pregnant and with child as well. And as Mary, this young girl, goes to visit this relative who we don't know whether she really knew her well before, but she goes to visit and to be comforted for her. When she got there, she probably went through the typical formalities of the culture that the younger person would go and bless the older. So when Mary, uh, when Elizabeth would have opened the door, Mary would have certainly offered blessing, thanksgiving, honor, and, and revering her older relative, and yet was probably shocked to find that in this case, there was a total reversal, a foreshadow of what God was going to do 
because even as she blessed the woman who was older as a sign of respect, the woman who was older, more mature, godly, and spiritual, looks at this young girl and blesses her in a way that she could not imagine and told her, blessed among all women, you will be considered for all time. And it was while she was staying with her cousin, her relative, that Mary apparently wrote this song. We know that not only because of where Luke puts it, but because at the very end of the, of the passage, right past the passage in verse 56, after we read this song, we're told that Mary remained with Elizabeth for about three months and returned to her home. Now, my tendency is to look at this song and just the holy sequence of events and almost think of a musical. It's kind of like, okay, here's the visitation and then the response and then the go and visiting of the relative. And then after she's blessed, she just breaks out into this prophetic and complex song. The likelihood is that Mary spent a significant amount of time pondering what had taken place and each day writing thoughts out, guided by the Holy Spirit to give a profound wisdom, leaning on her understanding of the scriptures that she would have been taught growing up in terms of all of the Old Testament stories, and just pondering the implications of this and then she produces this song that focuses her attention totally on the power and the holiness and the mercy and the promise of our God. And so when we first ask, where does such a perspective come from? She has an absolutely incredible story, and we can understand how she has such a perspective that even in the circumstances that are uncertain, she is able to say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. But more than we understanding how she had this perspective, we need to see two things this morning. And the first, I believe, is this, is that her perspective is the source for our hope and for our confidence as well. This song reveals to us that not everything that we see is all that is going on. And Mary reveals that as she is writing in this, and not only does she move into bursting forth into song and writing this down for our benefit, but then the substance of the song, as you look down a little bit further, she talks about a reversal that God is initiating through the fulfillment of the promise that is this child that is to be born to her, the Messiah. And we see as we look through in verses 51 through 53, three different dimensions that the reversal is to take place. And what's significant about this is the tense in which she writes. Because recognize as we're looking at this, all the things that she's talking about are yet to come, and yet her words are all written in the past tense. In each of those circumstances, we need to realize Mary, looking on the character and the promise of God, recognizes that what is seen is not all there is and is not all that's going on, and that when God has made a promise, that it is as good as done at the moment that he has promised it. And so we see her responding to this and looking at a total reversal of the world's standards and values, as we see in verse 51. First, we see a moral reversal. He has shown strength with his arm, 
and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In other words, as people began to set their own values according to what would be best for them, and then those who had achieved those things began proud in their way. Proud doesn't mean that they were necessarily obnoxious as the way that they related to other people, but proud is a circumstance. It is a state of mind, a state of being that believes that you have everything that you need and that even if you acknowledge God, you really don't have any need of him. He's nice to be there in case something comes along, but overall, I can handle life all on my own. Anyone with that perspective is putting themselves in significant danger. Most people that wrestle with that may be very decent people, decent with others, but when you disconnect yourself from your dependence upon God, when we believe that we are sufficient in ourselves, we are not only distancing ourselves from God, we are setting ourselves up for failure. God <clears throat> says that that's not the way he would have us to live. And it's not, it's not the way that things will be in the kingdom. Because what the Lord desires from people is a humility that recognizes that while we may be blessed, we are dependent upon God. We are in need of his grace, not only for our salvation, but for every single thing, every part of our day. And the promise reversal is those people who had put themselves in power, who had achieved whatever the standards of the world and who are proud and felt that they had no need of God, they would be scattered in their minds. In other words, their thoughts would make them ineffective. They would no longer be in power. We see, secondly, after this moral kind of uh, shift in values, we also see a social transformation in verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. In other words, the people who are a power, people who would do what's necessary to keep power, they were the ones in the king, coming kingdom would lose the power. But those who recognize their need of God, they are the ones who will reign with him, the promise of the kingdom. And we see a material and even a spiritual reversal that is to take place in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, for many of us, that could be a concerning verse because many of you have worked very hard, you've been successful, and in the eyes of most people, you would consider yourself rich. Now, I understand the definition of rich is anybody who has more than me. Um, but in the standards of material possession, pretty much all of us would fall into that category, and some of us who are here would recognize that. And so we hear, we're going to begin to send away empty-handed. The issue goes to, the issue that we're addressing here are the people who believe that they have and they have achieved, and it's all on them. But the humble, the poor in spirit, we are told, that recognize that no matter what they have, it's as rubbish as compared to experiencing the presence and the grace of God and his power and his provision. Those who have that hope, they are the ones who are promised that they will be also reigning and will be the ones who will have the benefit of the kingdom. And so we see a thorough, and, and it's not just in a material sense, but remember what Jesus came and said as he was proclaiming the truths of the kingdom in his Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And now with that understanding, you look at this promise. He fills the hungry. Those who are hungry and thirsty after righteousness, you are filled with good things. But the people who think that you have enough, you'll go away empty. So depending on where you are today, depending on whether or not you are one who recognizes your need of God and you desire more of God and more of what God would give to you, or you're somebody who says, thanks God, I've got it from here. This may or may not be good news to you, but this is the promise of Christmas. It is a reversal from the way that we have warped the world into the way that God has promised to redesign the world. And these promises are based upon God's prophecy, his promise, his character, his holiness, and his mercy. Mary recognizes this is what God has promised to do through the birth of this Messiah, through the coming, the life. She didn't understand, but the death and ultimate resurrection of this child, that he would turn the world upside down, but in the right sense, he would write it the way that it was originally designed to be. And it's because of that perspective, when we share the perspective, when we look to God's promise, God's power, God's holiness, and God's mercy, we are able to have a confidence and a hope. But even more than just kind of this sense of hope that might be out there, there is something that is also immediate that we see in Mary. She's not only talking about what is far distant, she's experiencing something even now in thinking about what is to be because of what already is because it's promised. So not only by Mary's perspective do we have a basis for our hope and our confidence, But I believe, perhaps most significantly, we see through this song, by the perspective that Mary had, looking to God and his holiness, his promise, and his mercy, by that perspective, he turns those who believe into singers. It's an amazing, amazing thing that we have here because Mary is doing something somewhat unusual here. Most songs of celebration, most celebrations of any type, usually take place after the deliverance from our circumstance or after the deliverance of the problem has fully occurred, right? I mean, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you are a sports fan, you know the worst thing you want to see your team do when you are winning is celebrate before the game is over. Why? Because you usually look foolish. It's not just in sports, it's in life as well, because you never know what is going to happen next. And so the idea that we would celebrate before something has come into fruition doesn't make any sense to us the way that we live because we just don't know. But here Mary is, months before the birth of this child, much less the fulfillment of all of the promises, and she's writing this song in the present tense, and she's already rejoicing in God and saying that my my soul will magnify. In other words, through my soul, people will be able to see the glory of God's grace through my life. This is already being written. She's writing this in the present tense. She's already writing the song before the delivery has come into fruition. 
Again, Mary has an understanding that even though she's writing in the presence for the future, she's writing as if it's past tense. When God makes a promise, it is as good as done. And that's what leads her into singing. At the same time, there may be some who would say, yeah, but all of this is fine, but this is Mary. I mean, we've already kind of run over her story. Mary's kind of special. So just because some of these things occur to her, then what's that got to do with me? The reality is, is if you are inclined to believe that Mary and her specialness somehow warranted this gift, you're actually thinking totally at odds with what Mary thinks of herself. Think about what she's saying here. She's rejoicing because the Lord, verse 48, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. In other words, she was of no significance. She was nobody special. Her humble circumstances refers probably to her poverty. There was nothing significant about her. Doesn't mean she wasn't nice, it doesn't mean she wasn't kind, doesn't mean she wasn't seeking after God. It just means there wasn't anything particular special about her. And then what goes on even further, and probably the key word in our understanding of this, is the reason that she is rejoicing, we see in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. See, in other words, Mary was aware of the reality of her own sinfulness, and therefore she was in need of a Savior. She could work, she could try, she could do everything she wanted, but she wasn't sufficient in herself to be able to save herself from her own condition, no matter how good of a girl she may have been. And we sometimes miss this in our understanding of Mary because some traditions within Christianity have so venerated her that she almost becomes unhuman. And I know some of you have grew up in that tradition. Some of you here may still wrestle with some of those issues. And all I would ask you is, to compare some of the things that you may have heard in those traditions that raise Mary up into somebody miraculous in her own nature and just compare it to what she says about herself here. Because in some traditions, Mary's been lifted up <clears throat> as if she lived a sinless life entirely. Well, if case, then why does she need a Savior? Why isn't she just celebrating that God has sent a Savior for the world? Some circumstances, it's been lifted up that Mary was immaculately conceived. It's not that Jesus was conceived immaculately in Mary, but Mary herself was immaculately conceived. And yet we find nothing of that kind of statement anywhere in the Scripture. Mary is saying, I'm nothing special. If she was born without benefit of a human father, I would think that would make her special. And my point is not to pick on a tradition, because I think it's true, because some parts of the Christian church who have lifted Mary up and elevated her to a degree that is unbiblical, and yet perhaps in response to that, an overreaction to that, most of the evangelical church has just so ignored Mary and not recognized that it is true, blessed among all women, among all people that she is called. But we need to recognize that Mary was like us, with every struggle, every temptation, every weakness, every infill, and nevertheless, God 
put favor upon her. And we need to realize that that blessing that God had given to Mary also extends to us because of Mary's song. Look at verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him for generation to generation. So Mary's not only saying, I'm blessed, Lord's doing this, and so I've got my Savior, you find your own. She was very well aware, though certainly not comprehending all of the possible implications. But she was very well aware that her Savior was the promised Savior, the promised Messiah, who would be birthed through her, but it was promised not just to the one person, but as God was blessing her and working in her and then through her, the one born in her would be a blessing to people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And the qualification for those who will receive this benefit is not that God does something amazingly spectacular and unusual for you in a unique way, but that you're one who fears God. Now, what's that mean? The phrase that gets thrown around in churches and Sunday school all the time, what does it mean that we fear God? And in some ways, it's really very simple. To fear God is to revere God, is to have an awe of God for who he actually is. Whether you're conscious of the emotion or whether you're not, you recognize that God is God, that you are not, that you are not worthy to be in God's presence, and yet God loves you anyway that tension, that fear. It may be likened to this. If you have any fear of heights and you're standing on the side of a, of a, of a cliff on a mountaintop looking down into the canyon, uh, you know, you might back away a little bit because you feel that dread, that anxiety. If you're standing on the shores when a storm is coming in and you're seeing the power of the waves, you wouldn't dare go and try to swim because you have a respect, a reverence for the power of that ocean. It's that same kind of an idea that when we think of God and we recognize his power and his might and his majesty, we do not just simply say, oh, well, that's God, and we take him for granted. There is a reverence and an awe that it sometimes might give us an uncomfortable feeling because we know that he is holy and we don't stand against him. But most of the time, it's just simply a healthy respect that he is God. He is the one who's created all things simply because he's spoken into existence and in his holiness and his perfection no matter how good we are, we can't possibly stand on our own merit. The only way is if we have somebody who would be able to mediate that relationship and God in his glory and his grace promised to deliver that mediator, promised Mary that that mediator would be born in her and that he would be the savior of people everywhere who stand in humility before God. The only other thing this week that I was thinking about, I'll wrap it up with this. It was really interesting. Is it nowhere in this passage does Luke mention what kind of voice Mary had? I mean, we, we don't know. We don't know whether she sings like Adele or Mariah Carey or Carrie Underwood or whether she sings like one of those people who were in the early rounds of American Idol whose parents should have told them, you really can't sing before you go on TV and shame the whole family and we have to leave the country. We have no idea. And that's important for some of us because the whole point is that I, I'm trying to make is that the promise of God turns those who believe into singers 
Mary wasn't singing because she thought she had a solo voice. Mary was singing from an overflow in her heart in response to the love that God had expressed toward her and through her. And so Mary's soul had been ignited by a profound experience of God's grace that may be unique to her in the way that she experiences it, but it is through her that that grace is extended to all who will trust in the promise associated with this child. This is a season of singing. But a lot of the reasons for our singing is as an escape. A lot of people say this is the most wonderful time of the year because we can get rid of our regular practices, we pop in the Mannheim steamroller, we sing, we do whatever brings nice memories of childhoods and Christmases past, we squeeze that all into a few weeks, and all the time we try to turn our attention from the realities going on in the world in order that we can find a sense of peace and joy, and it's easier to hope. I believe that this song teaches us that we don't need to escape reality, but it's against the backdrop of the reality of the brokenness and the darkness of this world and of our own hearts that this good news promised to Mary and to us through Mary turns us into singers. Because apart from the reality of the world, it might be the feel-good but it is not an amazing grace. But when we recognize that God who made the world and we have vandalized it, has responded to that by saying, I'm going to demonstrate to you my glory by loving you and sending a redeemer for you. That causes when we realize that we are the beneficiaries. And to the degree that we realize that we are the beneficiaries, our hearts begin, our souls begin to sing and to cry out with joy and thanksgiving to our God. So I'm going to invite you now to stand as an opportunity because the promise of God given to you through Mary in the person of Jesus Christ, worthy to receive not just the words that we sing, but an overflow of your heart express to him.